Shift is brought to you by Planet M. Evan Lyle of Roush Enterprises is a big fan of Michigan. As he put it, the future of mobility is going to be decided right here in this state. Visit planetm.com to find out why. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-M dot com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. My name is Pete Bigelow. I'm your host and a reporter at the Automotive News. And I'm Leslie Allen. I'm the mobility editor for Automotive News. Uh, So I've been thinking that since we formed this podcast a few months ago, uh, this is officially a mobility podcast. And we have been really focused lately on automated vehicles and self-driving technology. Uh, And that is a subset of mobility, but it is not the whole... Uh, umbrella. So I think, I think today maybe we should we should branch out a little bit into other modes of mobility. What do you think about that idea? I think that's a great idea, and I suggest we look up this time. Well, in that case, I would like to introduce our guest today, Dr. Anita Sengupta, who is the co-founder and chief product officer at Airspace Experience Technologies, better known as Airspace X, a Detroit company that is pioneering personal air transportation. Now, from its base at the Detroit City Airport, Airspace X has been developing its first full-scale prototype of the Moby One. Now, the Moby One, Pete, as you know, is an electric vertical and takeoff tilt-wing aircraft, or as they say in the business, EVTOL. Of course, we should mention that designing the Moby One is uh, only the latest project for Anita. Previously, she's been at NASA where she developed the supersonic parachute that landed the Curiosity rover on Mars in 2012. Uh, she has also led the Kolb Atom Laboratory for the International Space Station and, and more recently worked, uh, worked at Hyperloop. So she has a wealth of experience in the mobility space in every sense of mobility. I think it's great that we're branching out, or shall I say branching up, in this episode. So when we come back, we'll bring you Dr. Anita Sengupta. It's only natural that the birthplace of the automobile has become the epicenter of autonomous driving, and Planet M is here to help matching mobility companies with the contacts and resources they need to succeed. As Evan Lyle of Roush Enterprises put it, the future of mobility is going to be decided right here in this state. Find out how Planet M can help your business reach its full potential at planetm.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-M dot com. Welcome to the podcast, Anita. So glad you're joining us this afternoon. Thank you for having me. So I have a question for you to start this off. Uh, You are a rocket scientist, an aerospace engineer, a pilot. Uh, You designed the supersonic parachutes that landed the Curiosity rover. Why are you interested in turning your attention to flying taxis right now? So I spent most of my career working on extraterrestrial things. <laughs> so, and it's because I actually wanted to. I kind of started doing uh, communica- launch vehicles, then communication satellites, and then extraterrestrial stuff. But I think as you progress in your career as an individual and as a leader, you want to have more of an impact on society. So I actually wanted to do something which was more down to earth and solve some of the challenges that we have here. Okay. 
Now, there was a time when even you were skeptical about this hype surrounding flying taxis or the burgeoning vertical takeoff and landing market. So what changed your mind? So I am a pilot. I fly for fun. So I'm used to aircraft in the general aviation space. Um, And so those aircraft um, in general aviation are actually much cheaper than you would get for business aviation or commercial aviation. So uh, inherently, aerospace companies may not do things as efficiently as they could. Uh, But when I learned more about the business model, the approach of using automotive technology where it made sense to reduce the cost, um, both from design to manufacture, design for mass production, you can see how you can significantly reduce the costs. Elaborate on that a little bit. How how is uh, Airspace X uh, going about reducing costs uh, in designing the Mobi One, and and why will this work? So there's two elements to it. Um, one is urban air mobility. If the industry does take off, means that there'll be many, many aircraft. So when you look at a traditional aviation supplier, they're looking at a couple of hundred units per year. If you actually make urban ro- air mobility become a reality, then you're looking at many, many tens of thousands of units per year, more like automotive. So when you do things at that scale, when you do it at that volume, you inherently reduce the price point per vehicle. The other aspect is simply choosing to design things in a different way, design to manufacture industrial design, which is more efficient. If you could make use of existing components um, from the automotive sector, such as batteries, such as electric motors, all of a sudden you can now bring the price down from the bill of materials perspective. So that's how you can do it from those two different aspects. So um, where do the efforts to create the Mobi One stand right now? Um, When are you going to see some prototypes and what's your time frame for a wide scale launch? So we've been doing a lot on the vehicle development. Um, We have subscale vehicles that we fly and test right now. We're located at the Detroit City Airport. So we have one-fifth scale or 20% scale vehicles, and we also have a one-third scale vehicle. And so those are all flying prototypes where they can demonstrate vertical takeoff and landing. They can do the transition to fixed-wing flight, and then they go on fixed-wing flight. So I can give you a link where you can see an actual flight of the aircraft going around our uh, city airport, for example. Um, Our target is to do a full-scale hover demonstration in the next six months and then to do a full-scale, full-flight demonstration in the next 18 months. And in terms of our overall timeline and getting things to market, looking to do cargo flights in late 2022 and passenger flights in 2024. So uh, tell me a little bit more about this plane. I mean, will this be something that you would get several passengers in it? Is this for two-seater? Or can you give us a description of the plane itself? For sure. So uh, Moby One is what we're calling the airplane short for Mobility One. Um, It's designed to carry four passengers and one pilot, so a total of five people. Or for a cargo use case, carrying a pilot and 1,100 pounds of cargo. And so we're designing it for a four-seater because it really is serving an air taxi function. So you can think of it as a replacement to an Uber or a rideshare service service, where you can typically carry four people. And so that's how we've honed in on that capacity per vehicle. What is the What are the use cases you see for Moby One? I think you, you alluded to the fact that there's cargo and, and human passenger capability. How do you see those use cases evolving? So from a certification perspective, um, one of the most important things with any kind of aviation or air travel is making it safe. And so depending upon whether you're using something for a you know commercial aviation perspective or a on-demand aviation perspective or from a cargo logistics perspective, there's different things that you have to do overall overall on a certification timeline. So you can get your certification to carry cargo first, which means you can start to generate revenues as a company that way. And then as you're building more time on the vehicle, you can then get your commercial certification for carrying passengers. And so then you can start to generate revenue on the vehicles that way as well. You mentioned you were a pilot earlier. I I foresee uh, increasing demand for pilots. Uh, And along those lines, why design for a pilot and not uh, not look at an autonomous uh, unmanned aerial system off the bat? 
So we are designing for autonomy. So all of the work that we're doing on our subscale vehicle to development is to come up with the software and the control laws so that the vehicle can fly itself. And largely in business aviation and commercial aviation, people do fly off of an autopilot, um, right? In almost in terms of everything except for takeoff and landing. So that's pretty natural to the aviation industry. But until the FAA approves flights where you can have fully autonomous vehicles, it wouldn't make sense to develop a vehicle which isn't compatible with existing regulatory space. But from an engineering perspective, to build into the design, the capability to be fully autonomous makes a lot of sense. So certainly having a fully autonomous vehicle does couple to a potential pilot shortage in the future um, and also has the ability to, you know, control your ability to fly in an even better way, right? So for example, if you are flying um, a jet, once you get above a certain altitude, you have to turn on the autopilot because the autopilot does a better job of maintaining your heading and maintaining your altitude than a person can. So inherently, it is safer to have autonomy. Is there a certain altitude or service ceiling that you are building Moby One to to stay within? So we are um, going to be in low altitude airspace. Um, we're going to be unpressurized cabins, which means that you really can't go above 12,500 feet. But in general, we plan to fly between 1,000 and 3,000 feet. Now, let's talk about the, uh, in, in automotive, we would call it the powertrain. Now, you're, you're going electric with this. So why go electric? So we're looking at two different, um, I guess you call them vehicle configurations, one which would be fully electric and another which would be hybrid electric. So the urban air mobility use case is really interesting in the sense that the range is quite short. So if you're talking about journeys between um, city locations in a distributed city like Los Angeles, for example, a 25-mile um, one-way trip is pretty common. It probably is going to be less than 25 miles. So even though if you are fully electric, you're going to be limited to around 100 miles, which is a total of four trips, it's still is possible for urban air mobility. And so the air, urban air mobility use case actually enables um, fully electric air travel. If you want to do something longer distance for cargo applications, for regional transport, then you do need to have a hybrid electric drivetrain because of the current limit in energy density of batteries. So we look at creating two configurations so we can couple to both of those use cases. Speaking of battery limits, so how do you balance the battery size and weight constraints? So you really are, it really comes down to a payload slash range limitation. So based off of current battery technologies um, for the fully electric configuration, you're going to be limited to about 100 miles. What is the, you know, you touched on this a little bit, kind of speaking about how I might go around Los Angeles and that this is like an Uber of the skies that you're envisioning. Um, where where do I board? What what changes in infrastructure, if any, are needed to kind of uh, grease the, uh, the the infrastructure to make this happen? So that is a important um, aspect of any new form of transportation is having the infrastructure that can support the new mode of transportation. So our vehicle technology is different perhaps than some of the competitors because we are tilt wing, which means we have the ability to fly like a regular airplane. We tilt our wing if we need to take off and land vertically, but we don't have to. So we have the ability to do short takeoff and landings from existing general aviation fields. So even in uh, Michigan and certainly in Southern California, there are general aviation airports everywhere and they're completely under utilized. And they're an existing infrastructure asset that the government, the local government already has to pay for, but it isn't being used. So if you are going to come up with a new mode of urban um, aerial transportation, having one which is naturally suited to existing infrastructure access makes sense. So we envision the first flights with our vehicle would be using these general aviation airports, taking people between those airport locations, which then doesn't require a new Vertiport, for example, um, that doesn't exist yet. 
So that's one way that you can sort of, it's an evolutionary capability, make use of existing infrastructure. And then as the demand goes up, then more infrastructure will come about to support increased demand to take you to even more locations. That being said, major cities such as New York and Los Angeles already do have vertiport locations and those can be utilized. So a company like Blade, for example, is already flying helicopter flights between downtown uh, New York and Manhattan uh, to JFK. A company like Skyrise in Los Angeles is also looking at doing the same thing. So there are assets that would support a certain amount of travel and as the demand goes up then the infrastructure to support it hopefully would also go up now i just have to ask you this question anita so you have this extensive background in aerospace what do your colleagues or your former colleagues say when you tell them you're working on robo taxis Oh, I mean, they think it's really cool and exciting and fun. And so a lot of my friends are pilots as well. So we're very much involved in the aviation space together. So the idea of having an aircraft that we could all fly, which is even more capable and having the ability to take off and land vertically is pretty exciting. Uh, And I think when you're an engineer in general, the only interesting engineering problems are the ones which haven't been solved yet. So you naturally are inclined to work on things that don't exist yet and try and make them more efficient. And even though tilt wing, um, you know, rotorcraft have existed for many, many years, Um, It's the advent of new technologies in the electric vehicle sector, for example, which now can revolutionize aviation to be more electric, hybrid electric, fully electric. And that couldn't have happened several decades ago because the automotive technologies that are now supporting that ecosystem didn't exist. Elaborate on that aspect a little bit. uh, Why is uh, AirSpaceX located in Detroit uh, and how can you take advantage of those automotive technologies? So uh, we're located in Detroit because we want to basically bring the best of automotive and aviation to bear. Uh, we want to make use of existing automotive supply chains and suppliers uh, where it makes sense in the EV supply chain for cars, which can shift over to aircraft. Uh, we also have a wonderful location, the Detroit City Airport, which is General Aviation Airport, towered field. We can use it for all of our testing. We can even use it eventually for air taxis taking off and landing, perhaps going over to Canada at Windsor, just across the, uh, the river. Um, and then... Of course, the unique capability of the automotive sector relative to, let's say, aviation aerospace is the ability to design very complex vehicles, very low cost, incredibly reliable, very repeatable. So that mass production uh, capability comes from an engineering capability, which is unique to automotive. So to be able to leverage that and put it into this UAM space makes a lot of sense to do that right here in Detroit. Along those lines, you had a tweet yesterday that I want to quickly read. Uh, Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, I think jumbo jets are awesome machines designed to last 30 years and be used thousands of times with a safety record bar none. There's simply no equivalent engineering marvel in terms of capability, efficiency, and purpose. Uh, how do you bring that to the aircraft you're designing? And you know, a skeptic might look at this and say, well, maybe Boeing and Lockheed should be the ones designing it. So why not those companies? And, and how do you really uh, you know, double down on that redundancy and safety? So the challenge of doing a jumbo jet is the fact that you have to go incredibly fast. You also have to travel at um, high altitudes. And so when you're traveling at those high altitudes, you're experiencing pretty large pressure cycling, which is the fatigue load on the aircraft, right? Because it's going from, you know, sea level, they're going up to 40,000 feet back down again, multiple times a day. So that's actually a driving load case. You also experience really large temperature variations as a result of going up to altitude because the atmosphere cools down as you go up in altitude. So the design constraints for a jet are completely different from the design constraints for 
a low altitude um, use vehicle, such as a general aviation aircraft or rotorcraft, for example. So in general, that type of design is unique to that use case. So it's quite different from the urban air mobility use case design. That being said, I think jets are awesome. <laughs> and I do love flying on them. I had the opportunity to actually fly in a friend's private jet to Oshkosh this year and co-pilot. So it's a pretty amazing experience to be looking. We were actually at higher altitudes than the other jets. <laughs> so but yeah, for me as an engineer, I just absolutely love the idea of being able to have that kind of capability. But this is a very different type of aircraft in the sense that it's traveling at low altitude. So the load environments are quite different. The environmental constraints are quite different. It's more similar to the environments that a car finds itself in as opposed to a high altitude jumbo jet. That being said, the car industry has a different type of use case in terms of a load criterion because you have to worry about impacts with other cars. Or is that something you don't have to design for when you're flying in the sky? I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you talk about use cases. Uh, Talk about the passenger. Who is your... What is your vision of who's going to be riding in these robo-taxis? So I would like to say that one of the things that we like to talk about is that this is personal air mobility for everyone. It's a form of mass transportation because it's a shared ride service. It's not for just an individual wealthy person taking a joyride across town. So it has to be priced such that anybody can take it. So we're pricing our vehicle and our design with the constraint that people can take it like they would take a rideshare Uber X or a Lyft. I don't know what the, the specialty version of that is, but basically $75 per seat per 15 minute ride, which is similar to what you would pay for an Uber X ride. So that makes it affordable to most travelers who want to go back and forth to the airport, for example. On the day that this podcast airs, you're going to be delivering the keynote presentation uh, at the inaugural Global Urban Air Summit in Farnborough. Curious what message you're going to carry to the the audience there will be. That Pete Bigelow is stalking me on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so my presentation... You posted it. I was very intrigued. <laughs> well, I my my talk there is actually going to be a little bit broader, which is sort of the revolution in transportation that, that we're seeing uh, across the mobility space. So my job uh, right after NASA was actually as an executive at a Hyperloop technology company. So I'll talk a little bit about advances in ground-based transport, advances in um, urban air mobility, and then advances in supersonic and uh, basically space travel transport and try that tied together to say like how can we all work together as a community to enable these new modes of transport but certainly I will talk quite a bit about what we're doing as a company but I personally like to find synergies between what people are doing because I think um, we all benefit from economies of scale we all benefit from having a supply chain that we can all work with because it lowers the cost of what we're ultimately doing and I just inherently like to just bring people together and so I do these inspirational type of talks for that reason. You talked about economies of scale, and I just have to ask you, just going back for a minute, um, what is the tipping point uh, when, where we can expect to see flying taxis as an option for travel for, you know, everyday people? So, right, you could make the argument that right now you can take a Blade flight, so it's a little bit of expensive. I think maybe it's like $200 a ride, so that's probably a little bit too expensive for most people, so maybe only some really... You know, executive business travelers should be able to afford that. So I think in the 2024, 2025 timeframe, you can expect to see it more as a service that a regular person could take. Anita, when did you, when did your interest in aviation, aerospace, space uh, develop? Well, you know, what sparked your, your career path? Since I was really little, so I've always been a huge science fiction fan, so I would watch, I'm an obsessed Star Trek person, so in an unhealthy Uh way, perhaps. There are more of us than you know out there, folks. (laughs) Which is good. I think this is a positive thing. (laughs) 
But so I've been watching Star Trek um, and Doctor Who since I was six years of age. So I always knew that I wanted to be involved in the exploration of space. Um, and I, it took me a little while to figure out if I wanted to do like astrophysics or astronomy or engineering. But my father was a mechanical engineer. And so I just loved his way that he could just solve any problem and I would help him fix the car and things like that. So I figured that's the perfect way that I can be involved in the exploration of space and also sort of contribute from a technology development perspective. So I've kind of always wanted to be in the field um, ever since I was a kid. <laughs> well, and this is quite an interesting time. I mean, this year marks the 50th anniversary since the uh, the landing on the moon. And uh, so I guess space is sort of um, hot right now, if you will. It really is. And in commercial aerospace um, is definitely taking off, pun intended, right? Whether it's with SpaceX or Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic and a lot of like smaller satellite companies. So you see fully privately funded ventures are becoming um, viable, business cases closing, eventually becoming profitable. Uh, and they've been able to do things, these smaller companies who've evolved into much larger companies in a more cost effective way than perhaps the traditional players in the past. So that's all part of the sort of like entrepreneurial um, disruptive start up model of operation, which I think we've seen over the course of the past decade or so. And obviously, our company is a part of that, too. So it's been 50 years since the moonwalk. Given your experience uh, designing craft for Mars, when will we see someone walking on Mars and what groundwork needs to be still implemented to get there? So there is a lot of uh, technology development that still has to happen to facilitate a extended human presence on the surface of Mars. We probably have the technologies today to do a flyby, for example, and bring someone back. They would experience high radiation exposure. We were just talking about this at dinner last night at the Detroit Athletic Club. So that's something where we do need to develop an improvement in radiation shielding technologies for that kind of environment because the interplanetary crews do actually experience galactic cosmic rays. So there's that aspect that has to be dealt with. I'm not a biologist, so I'm probably not the right person to address that. Um, but in in terms of landing people on the surface, that's the largest engineering challenge because you have to take a payload going at, you know, Mach 30 and slow it down so it's going at a couple of, you know, miles per hour. And uh, we do have technologies for that for landing robotic payloads, which is what one of my expertise is in. Um, but that suite of technology is not enough to land people. So you have to have uh, basically inflatable heat shields that have to come out higher up in the atmosphere. And then you also have to have supersonic retropropulsion. Then you also have to have life support systems down on the surface so people can last for a long time. And radiation protection on the surface. But the radiation environment on the surface is not as bad as it is during the interplanetary cruise because you can use soil to protect you like go subterranean and the atmosphere attenuates it a little bit. So in terms of when that would happen, it is largely related to how much funding there is. And I think that also has to be a global effort. People have to come together, tying in with what I said earlier. Uh, I think, you know, within 20 years, I could see it happening. Elon Musk has been a huge advocate of uh, exploring Mars. And would you say that um, his efforts are helping to push this effort a little bit? Absolutely. So I think one of the largest costs for space exploration is putting things into orbit um, at an affordable cost. And so what SpaceX is doing, what Blue Origin is doing, what the Indian Space Program is doing, they're all making leaps and bounds and strides or whatever the colloquialism is to be able to reduce that cost per kilogram to orbit. And so because of that, um, it becomes feasible to do, for example, on-orbit assembly of craft, right? So you don't have to just launch the craft as is, which limits you in diameter. You're going to have to have something much larger. So if you have the ability to send up many pieces at a much lower cost, you can assemble them in orbit and then go from there. Are there any any parallels at all uh, when you go from designing a, a supersonic parachute uh, as you did for, for the the rover to to what you're doing now in terms of terrestrial um, you know aircraft? 
So when you land, so there is a discipline of engineering, a very un, very restricted discipline of engineering in terms of the number of places you can work on it, called entry, descent, and landing. And so entry, descent, and landing implies that you're landing on a planetary body which has an atmosphere. And so when you're landing or when you're coming in through an atmosphere, you're inherently experiencing aerodynamic forces. So all the vehicles that land on the surface of Mars, uh, on the surface of Venus, that re-enter Earth's atmosphere are aerodynamic vehicles, except they're coming in at incredibly fast speeds. They're going through hypersonic, supersonic to subsonic. They're experiencing aerodynamic heating so they're like a very extreme version of an airplane but they all generate lift they all have drag and they all can be controlled or destroyed because of those aerodynamic forces so i view an airplane as a much simpler version of that because with an airplane you have a lot of control surfaces where you can control the vehicle whereas when you are a bluff body for a re-entry vehicle your control surfaces are basically not there at all there are none so you have to be able to modulate lift vector or you have to come in ballistically and then ironically I did spend many years working on the development of parachute systems, and there are some aircraft that use ballistic recovery system uh, as an additional safety feature, which is basically a parachute that pops out. And so there are jets nowadays that even have parachute systems embedded into them so that if there's an absolute failure, loss of all thrust from both engines, or loss of too much thrust from both engines, uh, then you have the ability to still safely put down to save the people. Now, you also managed NASA's Cold Atom Laboratory for the International Space Station. Now, what did that project entail? That was very different. <laughs> so that was a atomic physics experiment uh, to make use of the microgravity environment on the International Space Station. So it's to create another state of matter that not everybody is aware of called a Bose-Einstein condensate, which is basically taking a gas of bosons, um, putting it in a very low-density environment. So it's a very dilute gas. And then you cool it down with lasers, of course, <laughs> to a temperature just above absolute zero. And then you're able to observe macroscopic quantum phenomena um, at this incredibly cold temperature because all the bosons are at the same energy state, they overlap each other, so you create something called a superatom. And so it allows you to see this, um, you know, atomic physics, you know, subatomic behavior um, in this macroscopic way. I would imagine I can see the idea of heating something up with a laser, but the idea of cooling something down with a laser just... uh is not computing in my in Mind my head. Right? It's it's counterintuitive, and I think one way to think about it is that um, light does have the ability to push on things. So if you've heard of solar sails, you put out a large piece of fabric, and there is some pressure coming from light pressure coming from the sun that pushes on it. But light, um, depending upon the frequency of the light, has the ability to be absorbed by something. And so when it absorbs it, it actually heats it up. But if you do something called Doppler shifting the frequency at which it absorbs, it only gets absorbed by the thing coming towards it, which actually slows it down. And so this is a technique that was developed, I think, in the, I'm going to get the decade wrong, but 1990s, and it won the Nobel Prize <laughs> twice. <laughs> so um, it was really sophisticated that somebody was able to demonstrate that. But what's even neater or cooler is that Bose and Einstein theorized this in like 1912 before they ever had the ability to demonstrate something like this. It's only after the invention of lasers that someone was like, oh, I wonder if we can use this, create this laser cooling technique to slow things down to demonstrate that Bose and Einstein were correct and then they demonstrated the formation of a BEC, which is this condensate. So it's sort of like, we're, you're familiar with phase change from you know, gas to liquid to solid. This is another type of phase change, but you can only demonstrate it when you can get to these really cold temperatures. So somebody theorized it and then somebody else showed that it was true, which I think is pretty cool. That's fascinating. <laughs> you know, if you haven't written a book yet, please do, because I will buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about it. <laughs> 
so since since you were working on on that project, you're also uh, closer to home working. You you are a licensed pilot, and you are working on your instrument rating. Yes. Uh, how's that going? Tell us about those efforts. Oh, it's been a lot of fun. So I uh, I live a very busy life, so I always try to structure things. So I always go flying on Sundays when I'm in the country. Um, and so I've been working on that for about a year and a bit now. So it's been taking me a little bit longer than I'd liked. Uh, but it's so much fun because it requires you to be a much uh, safer pilot. It allows you to be a more accurate pilot. And so it just makes you a better pilot um, altogether. And I enjoy flying on an instrument flight plan as opposed to just VFR. Although when you do the training, you actually have to wear a hood. So all you can see is the instrument panel and you never actually get to look around at what's going on outside. So it's not as fun as visual flight rules flying, but I think it just had the ability to train me to be a much uh, better pilot. And I feel like that kind of stuff actually uh, couples to your regular life because you have to multitask like you cannot believe when you're doing instrument flying because you're constantly scanning the panel to make sure that everything's okay in addition to flying the airplane, in addition to communicating on the radio. So that level of multitasking, I don't think you can, I don't think there's another example of it outside of flying. Um, so you have worked at Boeing, you have worked at NASA, uh, you have helped land the Curiosity rover on Mars, uh, working on your instrument rating. What What is left to be done on your bucket list? I'm very curious. Um, I thought about getting a rotorcraft rating helicopter, <laughs> but I think I'll go for commercial first because you can get your commercial pretty easily after instrument and then maybe multi-engine. It just costs a lot of money, unfortunately, to get multi-engine. So definitely commercial because that's relatively easy to do. Maybe multi-engine, maybe helicopter. Um, but I also want our company to be successful. <laughs> so these are the fun things I do on my own time. But interestingly enough, um, when you become a pilot, you have to learn a lot of the regulatory space because that's how you, you operate in airspace. That knowledge directly translates over to what we're doing as a company. <laughs> so so a lot of the stuff that I do as part of my training as a pilot couples completely to the regulatory space that our aircraft has to be compatible with, for example. Well, I think this is a good time to uh, thank you so much, Anita. We enjoyed this conversation. And of course, it's always good to talk to another Star Trek fan. <laughs> so um, thank you for joining us. Live long and prosper. <laughs> thank you so much. That was Dr. Anita Sengupta, the co-founder and chief product officer of uh, Airspace X Technologies in Detroit, a startup that is building flying taxis. Uh I know that was fascinating to me and I have a lot to Google right now and uh, kind of further my education. Uh, Leslie, what were your takeaways? My takeaway was it is wonderful to have someone that you might call a popularizer of, of technology, uh, someone in the, in the tradition of a Carl Sagan or something like that, whose enthusiasm I think can really help to push this industry. So, um, you know, she has, she would make anybody believe in robo taxis <laughs> on the possibilities of the technology. Absolutely. I think her enthusiasm combined with her breadth of experience uh, really lends itself to, to something like this where, where there's a lot of skepticism overall. Um, but I feel, uh, I feel like I learned a lot today and I hope our listeners did too. I think you're right, Pete. I think we all um, went back to school today. Excellent. Um, well, that's a wrap on this week's episode of Shift. Uh, hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you next time. 